you have your Bible, <clears throat> open to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. We're making our way. We're getting close to the end. I mean, it'll take us to the end of the semester to get there, but we're in the, the latter third of it. <laughs> Last week, we, we finished our look at uh, chapter 9. And today we're going to begin looking at chapter 10, the first half of, of chapter 10. And, and with that, we're coming to the end of a, of a really um, a sustained argument. At the tail end, the, the, the capstone of this sustained argument that has been building since chapter 5. <clears throat> um, and uh, just, to, just to review where the flow of the thought of the whole letter so far, you know that this... This whole letter has been about how Jesus is better than all that came before him uh, in the Old Testament. Remember back in uh, chapters 1 and 2, the argument was that Jesus is, is greater than and superior to all the angels. Why, why the angels? Because Scripture says that it was through angels that God delivered the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments to Moses. God is so holy. Fitting this weekend, right? Venture. God is so holy that, that even on top of that mountain, even though God called Moses to the top of that mountain to meet with, with him, Moses could not just um, approach the holiness of God and receive that. There needed to be some sort of intermediary. And, uh, and, and Scripture says repeatedly, angels were those mediaries. Um, but, but the argument of Hebrews 1 and 2 was that Jesus is superior to those angels, as revered as they are. He's superior. How? Because, he argues, <laughs> Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, was, was the Lord meeting with Moses on top of that mountain. He was the giver of those two tablets to, uh, to, the, to Moses through the angels. So he's superior. And then chapter 3, switch gears, and Jesus is... He's like working his way down the chain. Jesus is superior to Moses, who was on the mountain receiving those tablets. It, uh, uh, Moses stood at the head of the Old Covenant, all the Old Testament, Old Covenant system of, of worship. Moses stood at the head of that. Jesus is greater because, like I said, he is the Lord who met with Moses there on Mount Sinai. In chapter 4, he switched gears to say that uh, he's moving through uh, Israel's history. He said, mo, mo, he, he, God, Jesus is greater than Joshua and the, and the promised land that Joshua led the people into um, because those, t those things, Joshua and, uh, and, and the promised land were just earthly, earthly historical, temporal pictures of the, the heavenly reality, the eternal reality that Jesus would bring about. Um, the, in other words, the, the goal of, of, of God in salvation um, was, was never merely to bring people into a, a piece of earthly real estate and, uh, and, and physical land and, and protect them from earthly enemies uh, and, and, and feed them with the fruit of the land. That, that's never the, the ultimate goal. Um, the goal was to re reveal through that what, what, what that was always just a faint picture of. Namely, that bringing all of his people 
forever in, in, into, into heaven itself through another and a better Joshua. Right? Joshua is Jesus' name in Hebrew. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a, a greater Joshua coming. A greater, a greater uh, promised land awaiting us. Right? That was chapter 4. But then in chapter 5, uh, he switched gears again. Having up to that point through angels and then uh, Moses and Joshua and promised land. Sort of been through all of that showing how Jesus is greater than everything that led up to uh, this old covenant. Since chapter 5, he's been showing how Jesus is greater than everything within the old covenant. Right? He, and it's been the longest section of the letter and for good reason. You remember he's writing to people who are tempted to leave Christ and go back to this old system and to put their faith in something other than Jesus for their salvation, specifically Judaism, and the work of the high priest, and the majesty of the temple, and the graphic, the graphic nature of the sacrifices of the animals, which no doubt were... I mean, just imagine, if you, if you witness that with your own eyes, the, the, the I mean, just bloody sacrifices, gra really graphic, had to have been a graphic reminder of the, the seriousness of their sin. And, and, and the graphic reminder, reminder of the fearful holiness of God. That, that had to have been uh, alluring to somebody who had grown up in that system, left it to go be drawn back to it. Uh, people were being drawn back to, to Christ to go back to that. So the author of Hebrews has spent the majority of this, of this letter. There's 13 chapters. Well, he spent, of those 13, he spent 5 through 10 on basically the same thing, showing how each of those things within the Old Covenant, uh, Jesus is greater than all of those. He's, great, he's a greater high priest. He's a, he, he himself is a greater temple. Uh, he, he, he is a greater... All those sacrifices were pointing forward to him. So chapters 5 through 7, he was showing how Jesus uh, is the perfect high priest to be a mediator between God and us. Paul would say the same thing in 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's one God... One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's 1 Timothy 2, 5. So Hebrews 5 through 7, I'm just reviewing the, 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 the flow of the book. Hebrews 5 through 7 was just making this same argument with greater specificity. It's not always, it's some of it's tough sledding, like showing how the, the, the Old Testament figure of Melchizedek, obscure character, was showing how Jesus would be a greater high priest than the, the Levitical priest. Chapter 8 then was a hinge to bring that section to a close about Jesus being a greater high priest. Now to introduce chapters 9 and 10, where chapter 9 talked about how Jesus, his work, actually affected the salvation of believers because he was the temple. He was the temple where God met with man. It's not a building. He's a person, God meeting with man in the person of Jesus Christ. And his, when his work was finished, he didn't, he didn't go back and out of the earth through the temple. He ascended to heaven itself. It's a greater work. Which brings us to chapter 10 today, where he's going to round out this whole section that has been building since, cha since chapter 5 by showing how finally um, this, this, uh, <laughs> the sacrifice of Jesus in our place actually did bring about the for, uh, a forgiveness of sins that uh, the Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrifices never could. He'll make that uh, point clearly when, for example, he says in verse 4, for it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those, those sacrifices never could do that. Um, and he'll show that it was the sacrifice of Jesus all along that could do that, the only thing that could do that. And it's a good, it's a good time to be reminded of these things, like on the heel of uh, Venture Weekend, um, if you were able to be a part of that. I hope it was a blessing to you. The theme of our weekend was holiness. Um, Friday night, we talked about the holiness of God. And then Saturday morning, we talked about how in Christ, our, by faith in Christ, we are positionally made holy, as holy as Jesus is holy. His righteousness becomes ours. We stand before God completely forgiven and holy. But that God also calls us to progress practically in holiness. And the, the third session was about how do we do that? And, and day by day, how do we practically go about growing in, in holiness? And one of the ways we, we talked about hopefully in your homes, about growing in holiness, practically day by day, is the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Reminding ourselves that on our worst days, on our most rotten days, God knew this about us. He knew it. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. And on our, on our worst days, Preaching the gospel to myself again reminds me Christ is still my Savior. You know? But also remembering that on our best days, as good a day as I feel like I've had or as good as I feel like I've been, I'm preaching the gospel to myself reminds me I still need a Savior. I still need a Savior. And as good as my day might have been, Christ was perfect in my place. You know? That hopefully dovetails perfectly with our passage this morning in Hebrews 10. On the one hand, when we read it in just a minute, it's going to seem on the surface like he's making a point that he's already made a hundred times. Uh, namely, that all that you see in the Old Testament was just a faint shadow of what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the, is the reality, is the actual thing that was always casting that shadow, right? And I mean, on the, on the one hand... It seems like we've been making that same point every week since chapter 5. Right? Um, we'll see it again today. But on the other hand, one thing that I think is different about this passage, we'll see it when we read it in just a second, is, is the emphasis on just how forgiven we are. Like, it, it, It's going to make the point about how this was just a faint shadow of the real thing, and this was pointing forward to that. You get that flavor, but the real point of this part of Hebrews 10 is saying, when you think, even though, that, yes, this was casting that shadow, this is the real thing, let's zoom in on this real thing and look how, just how forgiven we are. The depth of our, of our forgiveness. Um, it's not just a hope, it's a reality. It's, it's more perfect and final than you probably have imagined. Um, and we'll see how today is in this chapter it's just it's a beautiful gospel to preach to ourselves every day so let's 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 read it together hebrews 10 we're going to read verses 1 through 18 um, then we'll dig into it a little closer <clears throat> for since the law has but a shadow let's see there's the that language has but a shadow of the good things to come Instead of the true form of these realities, it, that is the, the law, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
Otherwise, they, would, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having, been once, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Note that. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he quotes Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after, for after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear and necessary word and uh, it is our authority it is the authority whether or not anyone submits to it uh, because you are the authority you are the lord no one makes you lord you are lord we merely submit or we don't submit to you so it is our desire it's my prayer that we would submit ourselves all of ourselves to this your word and and submit ourselves to the truth so i pray and i ask that you would give us minds to understand the truth that we just read. Give us hearts to embrace and love that truth, not merely to know it. Give us wills to obey whatever it calls us and leads us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. Give us all ears to hear. Speak, Lord, in your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said, on the one hand, this, this passage it may at first feel like just like the stuff you've already heard a hundred times already, this was just a shadow of that. He's already said these things repeatedly, and they can never do... He's, already, he's saying here what he's already said in other places. But if you look more closely, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And, it, and it, adds a, it adds an amazing depth, greater depth than just, that never worked, this works. Like, it's, it's, it's an amazing depth. Um, and so to try to see that, here's how I want to lay it out. In verses, first, in verses 1 through 4, I want us to see the aim of the sacrifices. Something we've already, um, already kind of hinted at, well, we've already said, 
But I want to make it clear again from these verses. The aim of the sacrament, the point of these verses, not just to show, it's not just to show that they were ineffective, but it also tells us why. Because they were aiming at a target that they never could hit. Okay? So what was that what was that, that, that they were aiming at that never could hit? And then second, in verses 5 through 14, the longest passage in this, in this passage is the promise of Christ. These are the most interesting verses in the chapter. Uh, they blow my mind. And, and it's easy to miss because they're the hardest to understand. <laughs> um, but the promise of Christ in verses 5 through 14, and then finally, verses 15 to 18, just the depth of forgiveness we have because of the sacrifice of Christ as promised in the Old Testament. All right, so let's look more closely at the passage and think first about the aim of the sacrifices in verses 1 through 4. So, let's start at the beginning. Looking again at these verses, he begins in verse 1, making a point that he is essentially, uh, that is essentially what he's been making already in the previous chapter. So look at verse 1 again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make, those, make perfect those who draw near. All I want to point out here is, is what he's trying to do in the argument. If, if, you have, if, 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 you've been, if you had been reading Hebrews without stopping, for you know, like instead of waiting a week to come to the next chapter, if you'd just been reading, you would, you would hear in this verse words and phrases that he's already used earlier and he's already made lot, lots of points about. Like, for example, saying the law is just a shadow. He's been saying that over and over again in the last few verses. In chapter 8 and chapter 9. He used that, that when he says... It was a shadow of the good things to come. Well, if you look back at, at chapter 9, verse 11, he said, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things that have come. So he's used that phrase. The, the, the whole deal about these sacrifices being continually offered, he had just said that at the end of chapter 9. The idea of uh, making perfect those who draw near. He's already said that, that phrase of drawing near to God. He said that in chapter 7. Remember chapter 7, verse 25, consequently... Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he's using these buzzwords and phrases that he's already used previously in the argument. And what he's doing in this opening verse by using gathering all those up and, and stuffing them into this one sentence is basically saying, I'm, I'm about to tie up all these loose ends that I've been uh, crafting up to this point. I'm going to bring it all together and explain why. Why these sacrifices were not effective and had to be offered year after year after year. And the way he does that is by revealing what was the aim of all of those sacrifices. What was the aim? What was it aiming at um, uh, when, they, when they sacrificed those animals over and over again? What was it that they could never achieve? Look at verse 2. Otherwise, or he just said, they, you offer these over and over again. Um, otherwise, would they not, if these sacrifices were effective, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. What? That is an amazing sentence. What was the aim of all those sacrifices? Let's take out the, you know, 
the worshipers would no longer have any consciousness of sin. The worshipers wouldn't. What? The NIV says that the worshipers would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And that's true. They wouldn't have, we, we, they wouldn't have felt guilty, but they wouldn't have felt guilty because of a deeper reality that, that is explained further in verses 3 and 4. He says in verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. Why? Why, is, why were those old covenant sacrifices just a reminder of sin? Because, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And the operative words in that phrase are, take away. Take away. Those sacrifices could never take away sins. Take them away how? So completely. Take them so far away that... To combine it with verse 2, there would no longer even be any consciousness of sin. So completely that there is no longer any feeling of guilt over your sin. That was the aim. That was the aim of the sacrifices. A forgiveness of sins so deep, so complete, but something that they could never do. We've already said that so many times. Why? Because only what is like us could take our place. The next couple of verses and the next point are going to explain this even more. But for right now, in these opening verses, I just want to dwell on the aim. The aim of those sacrifices, of any sacrifices. That mentioned in verse 2, that the forgiveness achieved through the sacrifice would be so complete that there would no longer be any consciousness of our sin for the worshiper. What does that mean? How can I, in what way can I get to a spot where I'm no longer even conscious of my sin? This is a way you could understand that that's really heretical. Clearly the Bible's not being heretical. That's the standard by which we judge her heresy. What does it mean when it says, I can have a forgiveness so deep that I'm no longer even conscious of my sin? It means it is so complete that as I consider my relationship with God, my sin is no longer taken into account. Even though I've sinned and I've sinned again, I can know that when I consider my relationship with God, my sins don't even come into view. My, it's as if there is no consciousness of them as it pertains to my position before God. As it pertains to my position of acceptance before God. It is so certain, it says, that I, the worshiper, no longer am conscious of them. I'm so certain and I'm so convinced that they are forgiven, that there is no longer any feeling of guilt. My conscience can be that clean. That's the whole aim of the sacrifices. And it, and it, and it, it almost sounds scandalous. That's why you've got to keep reading. Because that, that's an aim that those sacrifices were always aiming at, and all through the Old Covenant, as bloody as they were, it was a target they were never hitting. It was an aim that they could never achieve. But he's going to argue, unsurprisingly, that was something that only Christ could achieve and did achieve. Brings us to the second point, the promise of Christ. We're going to see this in verses 5 through 14. Go ahead and admit, these are the toughest Verses in the chapter, 
But it's absolutely incredible what they're saying. Let's look at it piece by piece. The most astonishing thing he says is in verses 5 through 7. Look there. In these verses, I've already mentioned it when we read through it the first time, he's quoting, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. I mean, if, you're, if you've got your physical Bible open up, uh, you'll, you'll notice that, you know, like, it just looks different in verses 5 through 7. That's, that's because he's quoting an Old Testament passage. He's quoting Psalm 40, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 46 through 8. That's a psalm of David. If you had turned back there to Psalm 40, you would say a psalm of David. But knowing that, I, I don't want you to turn back there. I want you to stay right here in Hebrews 10. It's a psalm of David. Take my word for it. Check me later. Knowing that, knowing that Psalm 40, which he's quoting, is a psalm of David. What does that mean? It's a psalm that David wrote. Okay? Knowing that, that David wrote these words that he's quoting, look carefully at what he says in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, even if the translation you have says he instead of Christ, when he came into the world, he said, it's still referring to Christ. So basically it's saying, when Christ came into the world, he, Christ said, Christ said, and then he quotes what according to the Old Testament were the words of David. He's saying that what David wrote in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, was actually Christ speaking those words through him. That's wild. And keep looking at what he says, what those words are in verses 5 through 7. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have, not, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author of Hebrews here is saying that those are the words of the pre-incarnate Christ talking through David. And you can see how. Because look at those verses carefully. What David says in those verses doesn't make any sense if David is talking about himself. What would David mean? about himself by saying, a body you have prepared for me. But it makes perfect sense for Christ, who was soon to take on human flesh. A body you have prepared. And what would David mean about himself by saying, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book? What was written about David in the scroll of the book? I don't know. But it makes perfect sense about Christ, who says in Luke 24, he talks about everything written about me in the law and the uh, Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms, Psalm 40, are fulfilled. When you read these words that he quotes from Psalm 40, it makes more sense that it is Christ speaking through David, foretelling that he would come, that he would come. He would, a body was prepared for him. He was going to come as the Messiah in the line of David through whom he spoke these words. And what does he say? says what makes, may sound odd at first. He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. How can Christ, speaking through David, how can Christ say that God doesn't desire them when he commanded them? Well, he means it in this sense, that they never were God's ultimate plan to save his people because they were inadequate to achieve the aim of completely taking away sin. So what does he say? If that's not what you desired, what does he desire in its place? He says, behold, I have come to do your will. 
When is that referring to? When he came into the world. That's why it says in verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world. That's when he brought about what he foretold through David. That, that, that when he came into the world, he was coming to do the will of God. He was coming to, to, to um, be, do his will in his perfectly obedient life, but also in his perfect sacrificial death, achieving what all the previous sacrifices never could, which we'll see in the last point. But in verses 8 through 10, the author of Hebrews is reflecting on that, that Psalm 40 quote, on what he said through David in Psalm 40. And he points out that Christ, that, that, that Christ was signaling, in, in saying that through David, Christ, Christ was signaling that he was about to bring about a new covenant through which our sins really could be forgiven. That's what he means in verse 9, by the way, when he says he abolishes the first, or he does away in, with the first in order to establish the second. Meaning he did away with the, the need for all those continued sacrifices because the reality that they were always pointing forward to that could actually achieve all that they were pointing forward to, they had now come. And that's his point in verses 11 through 14. Whereas the old sacrifices were offered repeatedly and every time they were offered, it was just another reminder of sin. Sin, sin never was fully dealt with in those many, 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 many sacrifices. He says now in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why was his one sacrifice enough? It says because for a single offering he has perfected. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He said through David, a thousand years before his incarnation. I mean, just really wrap your head around that. He said, he, 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 he foreshadowed through David a thousand years ahead of time that he was coming to do God's will. And God's will for him was to offer a single sacrifice for all time for sins that actually could achieve what sacrifices were aiming at. A forgiveness so complete and so deep that there is no longer even any consciousness of them between us and God. And no longer any guilt before God. He says there in verse 14 that he has perfected, perfected, perfected for all time those who put their faith in his sacrifice. And to round all of this off, look what he says in the final verses about the depth of forgiveness that he could achieve for us. I want you to notice, just looking at your Bible, notice that, again, that back in verse 5, it says that Christ was speaking through David. Christ was speaking through David in Psalm 40. Well, now, down in verse 15, he's saying it was the Holy Spirit speaking through Jeremiah. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And he quotes, he quotes Jeremiah 31. It was the Holy Spirit speaking. That's why, that's why we believe. It's why we believe, guys, that Scripture is the Word of God. Like when, if somebody says, why do you believe Scripture is inspired and is, and is the Word of God? You might and you would write, be right in doing so, quoting like 2 Timothy 3.16. For all Scripture is breathed out by God. Right? Is inspired of God, that's right. But 
That's not the only reason we believe. It's, it's all this myriad of rich truth that we believe that. That it was Christ speaking through David. That it was the Holy Spirit speaking through Jeremiah. To all these little nooks and crannies of why we believe it's the Word of God. But he quotes again, saying the Holy Spirit speaking through Jeremiah. He was quoting again Psalm 30, I mean, excuse me, Jeremiah 31. I don't know if you remember this, but he quoted Jeremiah 31 at length back in chapter 8. Half the chapter is just quoting Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant, which shows you he's in one long sustained argument since then. But it's beautiful what he's saying here. In verse 16, he's quoting Jeremiah, prophesying a new covenant through Jesus. But for the purposes of this point here in chapter 10, what, because he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them, right? In those days, after those days, I'll put my laws in their hearts, write them on their minds, but what is his point here? What would be an important feature of this new covenant? He says it in verse 17. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Don't, don't miss, just because you've been hearing this since vacation Bible school at five years old. Don't miss the profound point that he is making here in Hebrews 10. Like, Go back to the original point from verse 2. That the aim of all the sacrifices all along were to, was to achieve a level of forgiveness so complete and so deep that it says even for the worshiper there would no longer be any consciousness of sin. It's easy to read that. It's easy for me to read that. I read that and I scratch my head going... What? Because it would be easy uh, to read that and think, would not that be presumptuous of me to think that way? How can I saunter up to God and say, knowing that I've sinned, that I'm just putting it out of my mind. No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even conscious of my sin anymore. When I know I've sinned. Is that not presumptuous of me? To not to be conscious of sins that I know I've done? When I think of my relationship with God, how can I not be conscious of my sin? I mean, let that resonate in you. What right do I have to do that? To, to just go up to God anytime I think of God and say, I'm God, I'm not even conscious of my sin. You know? What right do I have to do that? He says what right we have. God says. God says. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. In other words, you combine verse 2 with verse 17 and you get this, this truth that we can no longer, we have the ability to no longer have any consciousness of our sins when we come before God, not just because that's what I want to believe, but because God has said that's what He's already done. He, he remembers them no more. He has already cast them as far as the east is from the west. In the word, words of verse 4, He has already taken them away completely. So I, when I come before God and I think about my position of acceptance before God, I don't have to bring my sins into my mind because I already know God is not bringing them into His mind. He's already forgotten them. Already taken him away. Does that mean 
Does that mean we should never confess our sins and repent? No. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that when we do come to confess our sins, when we do come to repent, there should never be any thought or fear that they are not already forgiven. That I'm not already uh, uh, accepted in Christ. If we're trusting in Christ, the sins we come to confess are already forgiven. Does this give us license to sin all the more? No, not at all. Read Romans 6 and Paul will nearly cuss at you for thinking that. But if we think that, that it's license for me, then we haven't yet really come to terms with His holiness. And also, sadly, haven't truly tasted of His grace. That's going to be the point at the end of chapter 10, which brings us to the next warning that we'll consider next week. But let's pray.